Welcome to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. My name is Juan Zarati, chairman and co-founder of Fin. Very happy to have you back with us. Today, we have a great conversation to discuss issues of anti-corruption, bribery, uh, and the standards and trends attached to that. And, and for that, we have one of the foremost international experts, uh, Finn, senior advisor, uh, a member of the board of advisors to the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Elaine Dzinski. Uh, Elaine, welcome. Thank you, Juan. It's great to be here. Uh, I should mention to the listeners, uh, Elaine, uh, a bit of your background that obviously gives you deep insights into the world of anti-corruption, uh, not only where we've been, but where we're headed. Uh, Elaine was the senior director and head of the World Economic Forum's Partnering Against Corruption Initiative from 2012 to 2015. She was responsible for developing that program, growing it with all the stakeholders in the World Economic Forum's uh, vast universe, and in particular with uh, companies uh, and CEOs involved in that. She was also uh, directly responsible for launching the forum's risk response network uh, from 2010 to 2012, which was one of the most sophisticated uh, risk analysis efforts Um, globally, uh, looking at macro-level risks and their implications on business and society. She did that on behalf of the World Economic Forum. Uh, Elaine also worked at the Department of Homeland Security here in the United States. She was acting Assistant Secretary for Policy uh, from 2005 to 2006. She was also uh, the Managing Director of the Global Security Initiative at Interpol. Uh, Elaine has enormous international experience with the private sector, with the public sector, uh, and we're uh, enormously honored to have her part of the Finn family, uh, and certainly very excited to have this conversation with, with Elaine today. So thank you, Elaine. Well, thanks, Juan. We appreciate that. And it's, uh, it's a delight to be here um, to talk about um, probably my favorite topic, uh, corruption and uh, issues around uh, combating corruption. Um, I mean, it's really, it's almost dizzying right now, um, the amount of information, the amount of discussion and conversation and revelations around corruption, um, particularly uh, in the the political space. So we have a lot, we have a lot to cover and and look forward to the conversation. Yeah, this is great. And so for the listeners, you know, what we're hoping to do uh, and and learn from Elaine, uh, talk about that, that global environment, maybe talk about some of the big cases that have emerged in places like Brazil and Argentina, Mexico, uh, Pakistan, the, the global implications for development, uh, for security, um, and for political governance. Uh, but then go more deeply into what this means for dealing with corruption risk uh, in the financial sector, in the corporate sector, and maybe ending our conversation talking more practically about what companies and financial institutions need to be thinking about and doing uh, in addressing what seems to be increasing risk around corruption, uh, certainly more attention from regulators and authorities, uh, and certainly more political fallout that we're seeing in some major cases. Well, Lane, let's start uh, by talking about the recent revelation in the Paradise Papers. We've had a series of mm-hmm. leaks and revelations uh, on various cases, the Panama Papers, the Bahama Papers, the now the Paradise Papers. What are you seeing in, in those revelations that uh, tell us something about corruption and kleptocracy happening globally? And, and maybe we can follow that on with a, a discussion about the effects from the revelations. Sure. 
Uh, well, I mean, it's it's really a treasure trove of information uh, coming out between the, the Panama Papers and now the Paradise Papers uh, around these um, links across the global financial system and the use of, uh, you know, what's been described as a wealth manager class. So this profession of enablers, these offshore enablers, uh, lawyers, accountants, uh, real estate professionals, advisors of, of many types who uh, help individuals and corporations move money in certain ways for um, purposes of tax avoidance, in some cases tax evasion, um, to obfuscate the, the origins of, of funds, um, moving, you know, moving in and out of jurisdictions with relative ease. And although I think it, it's been fairly well known that the system exists. These these revelations provide a level of detail that uh, I don't think anybody would have ever imagined would come into the public conversation. So, I think the impact of uh, these revelations is is incredibly significant. Um, we'll see the we'll see the you know the broader effects I think over the coming months and years as new legislation and um, responses come into the. Uh, you know, come into the public discourse as a result. But I think we've actually seen a bigger move in the needle around the effects of uh, corruption and this globalized system that's being used um, to, you know, to effectuate a lot of <laughs> a lot of this movement of capital and 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 people too, um, uh, in a way that's uh, probably more uh, more effective than. 20 years of the work that I've seen in anti-corruption, right? It's just, it, it's phenomenal, I think, the, the, the impact of um, what will come out of these papers. So, um, so there's this, you know, this, what's been described by one ICIJ journalist as the story beneath the story. So this, this, the, 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 the freedom um, that this wealth management class has used to enable uh, the movement of, 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 uh, of, of, uh, funds around the world um, from various jurisdictions to uh, offshore havens in some cases. And it's highlighted, I think, a number of issues um, that are now increasingly well understood by the public, for example, beneficial ownership um, and the lack of data and reporting requirements around um, the person or entity that is ultimately a beneficiary of a company. And I think what has come to the fore is that this is really the single most critical gap in the global counter-illicit financial uh, regime and probably the most critical area for reform and something that's now under um, discussion uh, in the U.S. Congress. So it will be interesting to see uh, how, how that conversation goes and what sort of legislative um, changes may com come as a result. Um, from the from the from the broader perspective of the risks that are presented by these revelations, I think you know companies, of course, need to really be thinking about the reputational risks of using uh, these offshore uh, havens and enablers uh, to uh, to move money around, particularly for tax avoidance. Um, while there may be no illegality to what's happening, I think the the um, the moral risk associated with it is is has increased substantially. Yeah. So now companies really need to think about that from a more strategic perspective. Um, yeah. And you know, it's go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think I think you're absolutely right. There is a, a reputational risk here that goes above and beyond the the four corners of the law. 
um, that you're seeing with the implications of all of these revelations and the investigations and political fallout. I think there's a there's a recognition that there's a there is a reputational effect and a moral duty in some ways to subscribe to the principles of transparency and accountability. Uh, and to your point, Elaine, I think it's a really important one. The idea of of transparency being the cornerstone of um, how the anti-money laundering sanctions tax systems work, and uh, you know the the reality that there have been dark corners in the financial system enabled by um, you know corporate formation officers, accountants, lawyers um, in the in the parlance of the illicit financing world, uh, third-party money launderers in in the case of illicit finance. Uh, all of that is is real, and to my mind, and, and you've said it already, but it's it's worth underscoring for the listeners. the the fact The fact that this has existed is is not new. It's the the revelation and the stark reality of that in what is revealed in these papers and the leaks that is so shocking and has caused the the, the ripple effects that that we're watching in the news. Yes. And I think it also highlights this really interesting intersection around corruption, uh, money laundering, uh, the impact of illicit financial flows. You know, for so many years, I think that the corruption discussion has been country specific, Um, identifying countries that have uh, major corruption issues, primarily around um, bribes, uh, you know, bribe taking, bribe giving. Uh, and making a somewhat artificial distinction between countries that are clean and countries that are dirty, right? And what the what these revelations underscore is that that's a simplistic view of what's happening in uh, globalized corruption risk, right? This is a transnational problem. It's a problem of networks. Uh, it's a problem of um, lack of harmonization across jurisdictions and uh, tax uh, tax regimes, and all of this is being exploited in a way that has made it very easy to move money, uh, large amounts of money, in ways that um, you know, in a sense of ways, should require us to redefine some of these corruption-related risks because there are very few countries that aren't implicated in some way, shape, or form. Whether we're talking about corrupt officials that are moving money. Uh, out of certain countries, certain jurisdictions, or countries that are accepting that money. Uh, I mean, really, it almost leads one to think that there are very few who are not somehow involved in this broader globalized corruption network of risks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that the networks are obviously interlinked, and I think the recognition of that is um, is is more and more obvious given these revelations. And to your point earlier, and something that um, you know our colleague and my partner Chip Ponzi has made repeatedly, mm-hmm. the fundamental dimensions of beneficial ownership, customer due diligence, and the and the fundamentals of transparency that are critical to all of these things that that we care about with respect to preventing mm-hmm. illicit finance, preventing sanctions evasion, and ensuring that the system's effective. Um, all of it relates, and I think these papers um, help shine a light on that problem. Um, so, Lane, with that in mind, let me ask you to give the listeners a, a sense of not only the importance of uh, the issues of corruption, but how that's playing out in the international domain um, in recent years. Okay. Thanks, Juan. 
Um, so I think there's, because, as I said, there's so much to cover around this topic. I think it's good to take a step back and to try to frame it in in some context, right? To um, try to make sense of what's happening in this space, and and then kind of go into more um, the concrete issues and, and how, how we can address it. But if we start with the concept that we'll look at corruption as a global risk, which it is, and if we look at it through the lens of an increasingly interdependent world in which we live, okay, and by that I mean we live in, a, in an environment that we could call hyper-connected, okay, where people and capital and goods are moving through our various systems at an unprecedented rate. We have technology, new technology coming in, um, fundamentally disrupting industries and even even governments. Um, this is a very complicated time, and it has huge implications for dealing with legacy issues uh, like like corruption. So uh, so the so so I think where we start is that we're living in this interdependent world, and we have a confluence of um, issues, trends, and drivers that have an impact on uh, corruption. Okay, so we can't really talk about corruption without understanding issues around inequality, uh, fragile states, illicit trade, organized crime, global governance failure. Um, all of these trends and issues converge in some way. And uh, back in, in 2010 and 2011, when I was working on the global risk program at the forum, we, we had a look at this confluence of risks, which we called the, um, basically the illegal economy nexus. Okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. at the time, we thought we were, we were sort of forward leaning in terms of making the connections across these, these, these issues from a macro perspective and trying to help CEOs and world leaders understand this emerging narrative. But I don't think we anticipated or could have anticipated at the time just how central these issues would become to understanding what we're dealing with right now in this emerging global order that's still very much uncertain, um, but where we have you know these seemingly independent events like Brexit and, um, and U.S. election uh, outcomes and uh, other uh, the Panama Papers, for example, um, but actually. It's all, you know, sort of interconnected within this space, this confluence of global risks. And I think at the heart of it, we can point to two issues, and that's global governance failure combined with um, this heightened issue of inequality. So I just, I just want to frame it um, because it's important, I think, to understand where, where we go and, and how we kind of view this as this lens around um, global corruption. So, you know, we've known for many years, uh, you know, for many, many years, the corrosive nature of corruption, um, what the impact has been in terms of trust in institutions and uh, the impact of large scale embezzlement of funds at the, at the government uh, level, um, the way that markets are skewed um, through corrupt practices, siphoning development funds away from their intended purposes. Um, we can also make the connection to corruption and its role in fueling violent extremism and even revolution, okay, the Arab Spring being probably the best example, and the extent to which um, corruption has interfered in state building, okay, in Afghanistan being probably the best example, and it's extremely well documented in 
a book written by Sarah Chase uh, called Thieves of State. Uh, it's really interesting, you know, from the U.S. perspective, we spent more now in Afghanistan trying to rebuild uh, after uh, after the conflict there. In, ter- in real terms, we spent more than we did after Reconstruction post-World War II. Um, and yet significant amounts have been siphoned off of major infrastructure projects and other critical infrastructure severely hampering uh, efforts at statecraft. Um, so here we cannot disassociate the impact of corruption uh, and its impact on trying to build a more stable uh, democratic environment in places like Afghanistan. So, so this is this is the global context, and it matters. Um, it matters for organizations. Um, we can't really think about corruption solely in the context of does my you know do do people in my organization accept bribes? Um, do I have problems with my sub suppliers? I mean, yes, we have to deal with those issues. But the emerging uh, you know kind of global context around this is really acute and and needs to be understood. Right. Elaine, that's that's very uh, important what you just laid out, in part because there's this undercurrent of types of corruption uh, that that influence not just the economy, but uh, the trajectory of societies and and governments. Um, And to your point about how you uh, looked at the risk when you were at the uh, World Economic Forum, the the idea that there is an undercurrent uh, of corruption at, at times that does fuel and has a nexus with illicit economies, and that uh, in some ways uh, is, uh, is the environment in which that kind of economy uh, flourishes. Uh, one, one of the things I think is interesting, too, is especially for listeners who may not be um, as, as well uh, schooled in, in sort of the, the types of corruption, uh, you know, y- y- there are types of corruption that, that pervade the environment. There are, there are low-scale types of corruption that uh, people are used to, which is, um, you know, policemen taking bribes uh, so that they don't give somebody a ticket, all the way to the high-order corruption that you were describing and everything in between, which then implicates the private sector in a, in a very direct and dramatic way, where the private sector has to deal in environments perhaps that governments have created that have um, sort of corruption at, at the core. Um, you also have uh, private sector entities that, that are fueling the corruption, that are, that are part of it. And we've seen that in the Brazil case um, uh, with the Odebrecht uh, investigation, uh, as well as some of the other investigations happening in Latin America. So it, it, there's kind of a spectrum of, of corruption. But I think what's, what's really important here, what you were laying out, is uh, the high-scale, high-order corruption, even kleptocracy, um, that right. uh, that pervades and the vulnerabilities that that creates for nation states as well as for the private sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's been an increasing focus on the impact of of kleptocratic regimes. Uh, there are many, uh, you know, many examples that we could we could point to. Uh, but I think what's quite interesting, particularly, I mean, let's take the case of Russia. Because we have some good data on that. It's estimated that about 50% of Russia's wealth as a country is actually held outside of the country. Okay, much of it in offshore accounts, uh, anonymous holdings, real estate, um, including you know many assets in the U.S. And it's actually the amount of the amount of wealth held outside of the country, Russian wealth held outside of the country, is actually equal to the household wealth inside the country. So. 
that's a massive capital flight that's been enabled through um, grand corruption, okay, for the most part. And um, what we see as a uh, byproduct of that, of course, is, is um, a move towards huge inequality. So the top 1% of um, uh, individuals hold about 25% of that country as well. So, um, again, going back to the popular discontent over um, you know, corrupt, corrupt practices and, and this kind of um, retrenchment from globalization and this distrust in public institutions. I mean, these are the kinds of things that we can point to that continue to undermine and erode uh, global governance. So, so there's really, you know, there, there's a lot going on here that, uh, that we need to think about. And, and it goes, uh, you know, even deeper than that when we look at, you know, let's, let's talk about the U.S. And, and, and the U.K. for just a moment. I mean, these are two countries that have excelled in terms of um, implementing anti-bribery and anti-corruption legislation. One yeah. Corrupt Practices Act, the U.K. Bribery Act. I was going to um, I was going to ask you Elaine Elaine mm-hmm. if if you could yeah. uh, if you could just t- tell the the listeners you're you're feeding right into it which is great what what are the international norms and and, and what are the practices I mean the US and the UK have been leading on this as you were just describing can you can you right. take us through what the international norms actually look like and how they're evolving Yeah so, yeah, I, I would definitely start with um, the FCPA, Foreign Car Practices Act, and the UK Bribery Act as the kind of the core pieces of legislation, the legal legal frameworks that have influenced the global conversation around the norms in, in anti-corruption. And this, both of these, I think, and particularly FCPA, FCPA have had a huge impact on the work of the OECD uh, and the UN um, in their anti-corruption efforts and and some of the uh, work that these multilaterals have done to create and establish this uh, set of norms around um, anti anti-corruption uh, standards and and and, and legislation, uh, and from that many many other countries have adopted um, in some cases similar legislation. Um, there's been a move, I think, um, to you know, strengthen uh, through capacity building, uh, through uh, very, you know, discrete resources from OECD and from the UN, uh, you know, to help to help countries. But I want to point out something that is really important about this, because we have more anti-corruption, anti-bribery legislation globally uh, than ever. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the environment is shifting uh, in a way that is necessarily efficient or uh, if it's moving quickly. Uh, and it has to do with enforcement. Uh, enforcement is, is, is another challenge. And I think uh, even when countries make the commitment to adoption of what could look like a perfect legal and regulatory framework of anti-corruption and anti-bribery on paper, it doesn't necessarily mean that in practice it's easy to uh, prosecute, to get convictions, to be able to follow up with sentencing that is effective. Uh, there's still a lot of um, political and, um, and in some cases, legal barriers um, that continue to hamper the effort. So, so that's one dynamic. Um, and then, of course, the other dynamic goes back to uh, 
some of the other issues that we were talking about, and more specifically around this global illicit financial flow. So um, it's been difficult to prosecute grand corruption cases, to repatriate um, the outflows um, from certain countries that have been um, uh, you know, victims of, of, of um, kleptocratic practices. And oftentimes these funds are ending up in the U.S., in the U.K., and other countries. So at the same time that they've been promoting anti-corruption measures and trying to hold their, their, uh, their, their fellow countries um, to a certain standard, they've also been recipients of, of these illegal financial flows. So, you know, it, it just it complicates the, the strategies, I think, around this. And, and again, you know, because of uh, the massive revelations, particularly since the, the issuance of the Panama Papers and the increased focus on the impact of, of kleptocracy, it's just becoming harder and harder to um, get to the right um, ethos around enforcement and, and really thinking about how we strengthen the global system, you know. Ultimately, a lot of it does come back to global financial reform, which is something I know you, you know, focus on um, to, to a great extent. Yeah, Elaine, you, you raise a really interesting point because it, it seems like we're in a moment of great awareness about anti-corruption, but to a certain extent, uh, still, as you say, relevant questions about whether or not we're, we can enforce properly. I mean, I'm just thinking about right. the anti-corruption units that have been established in places like Kenya, Nigeria, um, even Brazil uh, in the context of Operation Car Wash. Um, right. Lots of questions as to whether or not there's staying power to the ability to enforce within countries, certainly within regions and within sectors. Um, and so it, it is an interesting moment because you've got a ton of attention given the Panama Papers, the FIFA investigations, uh, the 1MDB scandal. Um, right. But at the same time, those revelations reveal that there's still a lot of corruption happening uh, and questions as to whether or not uh, we, we actually can enforce the, the laws and the norms uh, that you so ably described. Um, so I, I think it's an, it's yeah. an interesting moment for the international community in that regard. Yeah, it is. I mean, it really comes down to whether the appropriate political will is in place and whether the relevant institutions are fit for purpose to be able to carry out these functions. Uh, do they have a stable um, class of civil servants that are able to follow up on enforcement mechanisms? Is the judicial system functioning properly? Um, without all these tools in place, without proper functioning of institutions, um, you know, if institutions are moving towards being more extractive in the way that they operate, then the chances for having a, a strong anti-corruption focus and enforcement effort are, are very limited. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's what we're seeing in some of the cases that you, you know, that you mentioned. Uh, and Brazil is really an excellent case um, in terms of this dynamic and this entrenched you know, sort of um, political um, <laughs> power that has, you know, really suffered um, from this institutionalized form, institutionalized forms of corruption, and and they're having such a hard time breaking out of that. Um, and you know, it's a, it's an interesting process to watch countries, you know, go through and, and electorates look at 
the the facts of the situation, um, whether they trust the institutions that are uh, looking at the problems and uh, the you know the so-called independent um, uh, prosecutors and 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 audit functions within governments uh, are they trusted enough to be able to do their job and then ultimately bring um, these cases into the um, into the enforcement uh, venue and, and in some cases it just remains to be seen whether or not it's it's going to happen or whether countries may fall back. Um, Right. Despite having a you know perfect legal and regulatory framework in place and on paper, right? Yeah. So it, it, your your point about political will is spot on. There's also a question I want to pose to you about you know it's come up in the Brazil case because the corruption has been so sweeping based off of the the investigation and the Operation Car Wash and the implications of Odebrecht, one of the one of the major companies yeah. in Brazil. Uh, and, and the tentacles that that has in Latin America and around the world, um, whether, whether some of these anti-corruption efforts are too aggressive or in some cases, as in the case of China's uh, anti-corruption um, focus in recent years, uh, has become too political. And so mm-hmm. the point you were raising uh, about the, the need for political integrity around how uh, anti-corruption efforts are undertaken because they can quickly become um, or, or, or have the potential to, to overwhelm the system or to become politicized. Can, can you speak to that a bit? Because there is a bit of tension there in how we think about the anti-corruption movement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about China for a moment because I think it's somewhat unique in terms of an example. I mean, the the, the anti-corruption campaign has been, I think, from a political perspective, I think it's been quite successful. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's fascinating. Um, and it's one, it's actually one case where we can see that the corruption, uh, the level of corruption in the country is, um, I mean, it's not, it's not affecting the economic growth in, in, in the way that, for example, we see in Russia simply because economic growth has been so significant in China, they've been able to, in some ways, mask the implications of the the grand corruption. Okay, so the economic engine of China has outpaced the impact of the corruption. Okay, that doesn't mean that corruption hasn't had a negative consequence on the economy, but they're not feeling it in the same way. Okay, and it's been a large, largely a political overtone to the the crackdown. Um, but behind that, I think it's a pretty interesting conversation about um, at what point does a country get to that threshold where the level of corruption and the the its 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 negative implications on economic growth actually cause instability within the political framework. Okay, and that's obviously what they're trying to avoid in China. Um, but it does raise questions about, uh, <laughs> you know, ultimately, what are they going to achieve um, through this through this campaign? Right. And are they looking deeply at some of the institutional reforms that are going to be required to sustain uh, that momentum and to, you know, to, to really clean up over the long term? And we just we don't really know the answer to that. So. Right. Elaine, I want to shift a bit to. Um to the impact on the on the private sector, because regardless of uh, of where authorities stand on enforcing anti-corruption laws, there are obviously uh, set obligations both in law and in um, 
in moral and ethical practices that uh, that implicate right. the private sector. Um, and obviously, the, the nature of, of and the impressions of a corrupt environment, either as established by Transparency International or some of these other rankings, implicates um, the, the risk appetite for uh, companies to invest or financial institutions to have correspondent relations. It affects foreign direct investment. Um, there's also enforcement risk. Um, and one of the interesting things that's happened, I think, in, in recent months, Elaine, is that you have corruption and anti-corruption issues blending very neatly now with sanctions regimes and anti-money laundering requirements. Um, you have in the anti-money laundering world the requirements to, to apply enhanced due diligence. That's uh, enhanced requirements on uh, source of funds, source of wealth, um, identity of account holder on politically exposed persons, which uh, is an attempt to um, deal with the risk of corruption uh, and the fl flow of funds. You have in some of the new sanctions regimes, um, and maybe even some of the older ones, um, implications uh, for corruption in the sanctions requirements. So you look at the Venezuela program out of the United States, there is now a direct link to corruption. Same thing uh, with respect to Iran sanctions as, as they're being uh, contemplated again uh, and other sanctions regimes. And so th there are very real risks for the private sector um, in this environment where there is corruption happening at all levels uh, in, in different environments and the enforcement attention seems to be growing higher and the regulatory uh, requirements seem to be growing higher. And so can you speak to, to what you're seeing in the private sector, especially given your background uh, at the forum and, and what you've been doing recently with, with us and, and uh, in Geneva? Sure. I, I, think, I think it's, you know, to your point, it's becoming more and more difficult to disassociate the impact of corruption, money laundering, um, uh, lack of sanctions compliance. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the waters are getting so muddy, and particularly with regard to the relationship between corruption and money laundering, which is quite symbiotic, right? And corrupt right. proceeds are often the ones that are being funneled back into the system, you know, whether it's a diversion of foreign aid or embezzlement or kickbacks. And so in terms of what it means for organizations, especially financial institutions, I think there's a real need to think about the risks in a more holistic fashion. It's very hard to do a risk assessment around corruption without thinking about AML. Um, it's very hard to look at AML without thinking about corruption. So, um, so I think there may need to be a, a broadening of the assessment in this area, and 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 then you know to try to translate that into you know, a, a stronger risk-based approach um, for organizations, particularly ones that are operating in, in markets where there's a significant amount of um, opacity. So, so, so I think that's, that's, that's kind of the key message uh, there. Um, but beyond that, I think, you know, th there's something that's shifting uh, that I want to talk about a bit more. And, and it, it's even more acute um, for organizations than three or four years ago when I was working at the forum and, and you know, interacting with CEOs on a very regular basis. And it has to do with reputational risk. So it's worth discussing this because you can have an excellent 
risk assessment and compliance function, uh, at the end of the day, you may still have a huge amount of reputational risk, depending on where you operate, um, what jurisdictions, you know, what, what types of, um, what, what business you do, uh, and, and how you're perceived. Uh, and it's this repu- reputational risk that I think is becoming a huge um, discussion topic, not only for the C-suite, but also for board members, and really thinking about how to manage that properly not only through the right systems and processes, um, but uh, in terms of the tone from the top and the, the, the broader ethical behaviors that companies uh, need to, you know, need to emulate. You know, we used to have a saying in government that, you know, you don't want to put anything in an email that you wouldn't, um, you know, mind seeing on the front page of the New York Times. And now I think that, you know, we can, we can translate that to, um, multinational corporations, I say you don't want to run your business in a way that won't be defensible on the front page of the New York Times, right? And you really have to take a a very broad look um, at how you're doing business, that transparency is here to stay, that, um, you know, companies should expect that they may be um, subject, um, uh, the subject of leaks. Uh, They may uh, have some, uh, you know, reputational black swans that need to be managed and the more that they can do to prepare for that and to make sure that uh, everything is running properly uh, from you know from that risk-based approach is 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 important so um so i think that's another uh, key issue that is being driven also by these globalizing uh, forces and and trends and drivers that we've talked about because Inherently, what's behind that is this distrust in institutions, um, and it's not just govern, govern, government institutions; it's, it's private sector institutions as well. It's a great point, uh, Elaine, in terms of sort of the reputational risk and, and a different outlook for the private sector. Uh, and and I, I just want to point to a couple of things that I think are interesting in that regard, and, and things we've experienced. I think traditionally, mm-hmm. especially financial institutions. Um, have viewed the corruption risk as um, in the realm of dealing with um, with gifts and entertainment policy, right? They're just making sure that mm-hmm. uh, there, there are policies and procedures in place uh, to deal with those issues. And then obviously having the right money laundering controls in place, especially for politically exposed persons. But what you're describing and what we're discussing is something altogether different, which is uh, embedding uh, a consciousness of the corruption risk uh, into the very fabric of how the business is operated and how business decisions are made um, right. and making that a fundamental part of everything that the organization does, right? And so it's not just about gifts right. and entertainment. Right. It's about risk appetite right. um, uh, around client selection, jurisdictional presence, uh, customer types, uh, products and services that are offered in different in different ways. And so... I, I, I think I think that's a really important and fundamental shift uh, that, that you've you've uh, you've been a part of and that we've we've discussed. The other thing that I think is interesting, Elaine, is that you know no country has been immune from corruption scandals, and so even the even the countries that sit sort of at the top of the transparency international list of being uh, less corrupt, mm-hmm. you know, have have been rocked by by scandals, and so you have, you've had the Iceland uh, sort of controversy in the wake of the Panama Papers with the 
with the stepping down of the, the leader in Iceland. You've had Israeli prime ministers uh, convicted for corruption. You've had scandals in Japan, uh, South Korea, obviously uh, major issues in places like Pakistan, India, Mexico. And you've had Im implicated with all that different types of companies and institutions, whether they're parastatals, uh, you know, like Pemex in, in Mexico mm -hmm. or uh, private organizations that have global reach, like Siemens, that have been subject to uh, anti-corruption uh, measures and, and, uh, and prosecutions. Uh, so, so nobody's immune. And so it, it makes the, the risk assessment, frankly, more complicated and requires companies actually to be more deliberate about how they think about the risk, as opposed to simply looking at the Transparency International list and using that as a, uh, or some other marker like that as a simple proxy for where risk lies in the space. So I just, I wanted yeah. to point that out because I think yeah. uh, it feeds directly off of, of your insights. And I think it, it's important for the private sector to understand that that risk is, is at times nuanced. Uh, and implicates legitimate big actors at times, as we've seen in some of these prosecutions that have been brought, where big banks are involved or uh, major multinational companies or even legitimate law firms. Um, in the yeah. case of 1MDB, we've seen that, uh, of course. Um, so in that regard, Elaine, you know, what do you see as, you know, the, what's, what's happening next in the space? What should the listeners be looking for uh, and then I, I want to end, um, I know you wanted to, to talk to this, what should uh, corporations uh, and banks be thinking about as, as you forecast uh, what comes next in the anti-corruption field? Yeah. So just one, uh, one additional comment on um, this reevaluation of, of risk and, and to your point, you know, not relying on indicators um, like indices to actually be the, you know, the, the, the um, determining factor on um, you know, companies make decisions to operate in environments. I, I, the questions now need to focus on issues around uh, whether an organization uses shell corporations, whether they're doing business in kleptocratic regimes, and if they are, by what rules they're playing. You know, it's a different set of questions than we would, would have even asked five years ago. That's how much things have shifted, I think, um, in terms of how companies need to um, rethink their their risk frame, uh, framework around around corruption and related issues. Um, in terms of you know, in terms of where we're going and where we're headed, I want to I want to bring up another um, issue. It's really a, it's a it's a it's a global you know I call it a global trend, um, and it has to do with expectations of the next generation and millennials in particular. And this is important because all types of organizations are looking to recruit um, the best talent into their organizations. There's a talent war, and I think it's going to get even more um, pronounced. And um, we did some work back in 2013 at the forum. Uh, we did a survey of um, a group of millennials, uh, had a community called Global Shapers, uh, who were um, people who are quite active within their local communities between the ages of 20 and approximately 20 and 30. And we surveyed them on their views on transparency and whether they felt that corruption was an impediment um, to opportunities in the workplace. And the results were really interesting. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the most important message that came out of it was that the expectations of, of 
the generation that over the next 10 years will assume key leadership roles is that they, they're looking for more transparent environments and they're not willing necessarily to accept the status quo. Okay, so, uh, so to the extent that organizations are thinking about long-term success uh, and how to position themselves properly, um, they need to be thinking about what their workforce is expecting and I think we're in for a big shift. It's already starting to happen, but it's something that um, organizations, all organizations really need to, to think about. So again, it's a little bit off the, 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 the legal and regulatory path of discussion, but something that needs to be taken into consideration. So um, in terms of you know, other things that companies need to be thinking about, uh, I wanna talk a little bit about technology, okay? and. Mm -hmm. Uh, technology both as an enabler of transparency, but also as enablers of uh, criminality and corruption. Yeah. Because we have, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the transparency implications of using blockchain and the introduction of digital currencies and cryptocurrencies. And um, there are pros and cons to all of this. Um, also, organizations may be looking at using uh, automated tools for due diligence, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, a lot of work being done in that realm to try to help reduce and mitigate risk. And I think all of that has great promise and we need to explore all of it. And um, I know there's a lot of money going into that sector to look at how these tools can evolve and address the, uh, the issues. But at the end of the day, we, we can't forget about the ethical framework behind what we're doing and the need for proper institutions. You know, going back to this notion of institutions that are fit for purpose, organizations that are fit for purpose. Um, none of these tools and technologies will in any way replace the need for a strong governing framework that is backed by the leadership of an organization. Right. So. Uh, it's just something that we really, you know, we really need to keep front and center um, and not can fall into this trap that any particular technology is going to be a panacea um, when it comes to addressing corruption risks, because as quickly as we can develop the new technology, there may likely be a workaround. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's just uh, it's going to be an ongoing it's an ongoing um, challenge. So yeah. um, some other things that I, I think are, you know, are, are still a concern and where there may be opportunities uh, for organizations to work together. So I'm just focusing on this notion of collective action and uh, setting aside uh, for the moment what might be required in terms of legal and regulatory, um, you know, requirements and, and looking at opportunities for organizations to work together and we've seen a growth in interest around collective action and applying that in the anti-corruption environment. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. It takes a lot of will, takes a lot of leadership, and it can take time um, to really try to shift market dynamics in a more transparent way. Um, but opportunities for self-regulation or for like-minded yes. um, parties yes. to be working together is absolutely critical. Um, and we shouldn't necessarily wait for uh, government to catch up with addressing some of these market inefficiencies if companies are willing to work together. And, of course, you have to be careful about not overstepping into what might be considered you know, coll uh, collusion. But um, there's a huge space out there 
to be able to to work together and that, that's part of what we were driving through um patchy at the, at the forum you know it was creating that global dialogue and discussion across industries and sectors um, to be able to raise awareness but also to to create the conditions where organizations can begin to work together uh, and i think this is also true for financial institutions where there's a real opportunity to be working more closely um, to establish stronger relationships with correspondent banks to you know to be able to um, work together uh, to strengthen the system for the for the benefit of everyone yeah couldn't agree more elaine i, I love the way you framed all of the, those issues you know we're we've been evangelizing and working on some of this and i think uh, your point about technology uh, being an enabler but not the savior is is important because there, you know, your point about the importance of culture and leadership and conditions is, is really critical. There's no automaticity to anti-corruption. There has to be leadership and commitment yeah. to it. Um, yeah. But what what I find promising in, in everything you've said and and some of the work that we're doing is that if you can design the technology in a way that enables and reinforces. Uh, the strengths of the anti-money laundering and anti-corruption systems. Um, there's there's enormous advantage and, and potential opportunity there, but you shouldn't over rely on it. To your point, um, another thing that that we're trying to do is to 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 see if we can create uh, what we call fin zones, areas of financial integrity, uh, especially in environments that have been known to be highly corrupt or to be uh, susceptible to corruption. If there's an ability to create uh, ink blots where there is clarity around uh, transparent and accountable financial dealings and, and investment, and having that be an attractive market um, uh, practice and and um, and allure for capital, for foreign direct investment, for foreign uh, corporate uh, presence in certain jurisdictions, that that's a that's an interesting. Uh, model and, and hopefully that those ink blots then become uh, the the presiding um, and and prevalent culture that then begins to affect that environment in a positive way. That's something that we've looked at. And I think is a, is a very promising endeavor. And finally, to your point, that sort of driving the market demands around financial integrity, having that be a, a way of creating the stickiness around correspondent banking relationships. Um, attractiveness to investment, as I just said, and to your point, creating the the common environment uh, where uh, the the expectations of anti-corruption are well established, are demanded by the major global banks, the major uh, corporates, uh, in a way that really does shape the environment. And I I couldn't agree with you yeah. more that we shouldn't wait for the UN or the OECD or even the uh, Department of Justice or the prosecutors in, in Great Britain to, to define this, that the, the market right. can define this in many ways on its own and begin to shape the environment in some critical ways. It's not easy uh, and it's difficult when there's high levels of corruption, uh, but there are ways of managing it, especially uh, if you've got the right culture and leadership uh, in place. Yes, and, and if you can create that sense of trust within a community, uh, and again, this goes back to, you know, the framework outside of technology, right, that will ultimately allow us to uh, have some success in terms of driving this sort of market reform and transparency reform that we all that we all want to see. Ultimately, it comes down to individual will and ability to, you know, to work together 
um, to find that common space and then to create that safe space in which, um, you know, it is, in fact, uh, interesting for foreign direct investment to, you know, to enter a market that otherwise would be completely inhospitable. And I see this as a real opportunity in countries where they're years away from having a solid enforcement framework. You know, somehow right. we have to figure out how we can jumpstart this. Otherwise, we're going to be plotting along for a, for a, for a long, long time. You know, so um, so we need to look at those points of acceleration. Um, and it's not just technology. So, yeah. Uh, amen. Amen. Uh, Sister Dzinski. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's, that's great. Um, <laughs> And I think, you know, part of what's exciting about our work together is I think we're trying to, to find the, those points of acceleration, find the right clients that are willing to, uh, uh, whether they're jurisdictions or uh, private clients, to, to really jumpstart and to be committed to this in a fundamental way. Yeah. Um, and that's, yeah. that's what's exciting about this space, because it's, uh, these issues aren't going away. Uh, the enforcement actions aren't going to stop. Uh, revelations will continue. Uh, political instability that comes from high-end corruption will will no doubt continue to rock certain regimes, um, and no doubt, Elaine, you are going to be a, a key voice and and uh, observer and shaper of this environment. So, um, very happy to have had you on this podcast, and and thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Juan. It's it's really a pleasure and a pleasure to work with you and and to be part of you know, establishing some really interesting um, programs and ideas and, and initiatives that hopefully are, are, are here for the long term, that, you know, collectively we can look back in in a, in a decade or, you know, whenever <laughs> and say, you know, we, we laid the groundwork for something that was really important uh, to do and has lasting impact um, in the kind of world that we want to build. So thanks again. It was just a great pleasure to be here and look forward to our continued collaboration. Thanks, Elaine. And I know the listeners benefited uh, immensely from the conversation. Thanks for your time. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for taking time with us. Hope you enjoyed this episode of FinCast. Uh, look for next episodes on our website. For now, thank you and uh, enjoy the day. 